0: This is the Humans of Gaming podcast, an open and honest conversation about games, life, and belief.
1: Hello and welcome to Humans of Gaming, I'm Drew Dixon, I'm the chief content nerd at Love Thy Nerd, and I'm joined... With Chris Qualtney, our chief executive nerd. How's it going, man?
0: Hey, I'm Chris. You stole my thunder and said my title, so. Yeah, so. Uh, Here I am. (laughs) Good (laughs) luck.
1: You're here. You having a good week, man? Uh,
0: Big news. Big news? I beat Sekiro last night.
1: Ooh, congratulations.
0: The game is a masterpiece. I'm just calling it now.
1: Man, I, 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 as I said on Facebook recently, I wish people would stop talking about it because it makes me want it really bad. I mean,
0: bad. I did buy it physically, and so I could be persuaded to mail it to you.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: But okay, you might have to wait because I think I have another friend that wants to play it, but I don't know. We'll see.
1: So here's the question though: Like this other friend, is he is he more important in your life uh. than me? <laughs>
0: I was afraid you were gonna ask that.
1: Uh, Just kidding. Don't answer that. I really don't want to know because if it's not favorable to me. Let me just tell you let me just tell
0: you this, Drew. Flattery will get you everywhere with me. (laughs) Okay. All right.
1: Chris, you're a wonderful human being. (laughs) And uh you do a great job with Love Thy Nerd. I'm really excited to be going to California with you next month. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh we have a special guest. and that's Kate Edwards. Hey, Kate.
2: Hey, how's it going? Hi, Kate.
1: Hello. You you have done a lot. I feel like in the games <laughs> industry. Um, you were the executive director of the International Game Developers Association mm-hmm. for several years. Um, you're a geographer. What? How? How do you? How else? Do, how do you introduce yourself when you talk about <laughs> the work you've done? And, um, and continue to do in the games industry
2: yeah I guess typically what I would tell I what I tell people is that I'm a I'm a culturalization strategist or consultant and a uh, industry advocate so typically that kind of helps encapsulate those two sides of my brain that uh, is most of the activity that I'm involved with so yeah that's that's basically how I would characterize it if I want to put it really simply
1: yeah so uh, put those I mean because I feel like I think I kind of I understand what you're talking about there, but I think maybe the average gamer doesn't realize what those terms mean. So right. what do you mean when you say you're a, a cultural strategist within, so, b- within the realms of this, the games industry?
2: Yeah. So basically I, you know, I am a geographer and a cartographer. That's my academic background. And I actually worked in the field. Um, I, I ended up going into Microsoft and helping them with all kinds of geopolitical and cultural issues and across all the Microsoft products like country names and use of gestures and icon design and all of that stuff. And uh, around the time when um, Microsoft was pushing into the game sector with all their PC games like MechWarrior and Astron's Call and Age of Empires and all that mm. stuff, um, I worked on, on all of those as I was basically kind of more clandestinely at first helping out people in the games group because that was my mandate Um, I eventually went on to create a a geopolitical strategy team, I called it, at Microsoft, Um, so basically made up my job, um, figured out a way to help the company avoid uh, making political and cultural risks across all their content which included all the games so at first the games work was pretty informal it was just kind of behind the scenes helping a you know an editor here and a artist there and and but eventually it would go on to become a much more formal process that would go across every game at microsoft so um so i was really fortunate in my time there which was, i was there for 13 years you said across across
1: mm-hmm. every game microsoft made
2: yes on pc for and xbox yes Wow. So pretty much all of that stuff, all the Halos and Fable and Age of Empires and, I mean, Forza, and I don't even remember them all, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> I, know it, I so, know it was a lot. I know it was a lot.
1: Yeah, so you were kind of helping Microsoft not make a lot of missteps in the way that they, they yeah. handled a lot of these things?
2: Yeah, basically, I mean, because they, what I, what I saw happen, we had, we actually had this very specific incident, which I won't go into all the details because it's a lengthy story, but basically they had an incident in 1997 that really, really, um, upset the Korean government. And, um, mm. it was over some content issues in the Encarta World Atlas program, um, that, you know, cause I worked on Encarta. That was my first job at Microsoft.
0: Oh, um, <laughs>
2: that That was, uh. You know, which I often have to explain to people who are not of the similar age that that no, was know. <laughs> the I'm
0: precursor. i like, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. That word. Oh,
2: yeah. So that was the precursor to Wikipedia. I mean, that's what yeah. that's what a lot of the world used before Wikipedia. They used Encarta. And so I'd worked on Encarta Encyclopedia and the World Atlas product. And um, but yeah, they had this big snafu with the which made the Korean government upset and It caused a lot of headaches and problems, and um, the main issue in that time when this happened in 1997 is that we made a mistake in Encarno World Atlas, and we fixed it, Um, and then we told the government that we were going to make sure that mistake was not propagated in other programs. Well, Mm -hmm. three months later, the very first Age of Empires was released, and they had the same error that we just told (laughs) the government we would fix. And of course, the issue is that, you know, Encarta is made on one side of the company in a completely different product group and Age of Empires right. in another. And those groups were not talking to each other because frankly, at the time, they really didn't have a reason to. Sure. Um, and that was really it. That was what gave me the spark of the idea that somebody in the company needed to make sure that this kind of knowledge is coordinated across all the products. Because, you know, for governments, you know, they, they don't see Age of Empires or... In Carter, they just see Microsoft, you know, mm-hmm. it, they don't, they don't right. see all the subtlety of it. And uh, frankly, they're right. I mean, it's 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 on the company's shoulders to make sure all that stuff is corrected. And so that's basically how that group was born. And, and um, yeah, went on to manage that for seven years before I left in 2005. That's yeah. so
0: wild. I love hearing about No, you don't ever. Th- I've never once in my life prior to you talking about this right now. Mm -hmm. ever thought that that was someone's job (laughs) you know or like these obscure things you know obscure to the layman like me Mm
2: -hmm.
0: um that you just never think about and i love hearing about that stuff um because it just it broadens your perspective and it gives you i think sometimes like a deeper appreciation you know yeah so that's so cool that even that you saw that need and like filled it you know created your job like you said
2: well, it wasn't easy. I mean, I, I when I came up with the idea, I originally called it the Microsoft Office of International Affairs, which frankly <laughs> they thought was a little too grandiose. So that, that's
1: <laughs> I love it though.
2: Yeah, I, I I I still kind of have a fondness for that, but eventually that's why it just became simply geopolitical strategy is the group name. But um it took me seven months and, and that shopping- also
1: kind of sounds like a like you're an international agent or something yeah it
2: does and actually we (laughs) actually had an internal program to get other microsoft employees to help us out and we did in fact call them agents because we wanted to kind of get them into the spirit of it with the whole kind of spy james Mm -hmm. bond thing so they would actually help us and they did to a great degree but um yeah the idea didn't come easy because after i came up with an initial proposal it took me seven months to shop it around to different VPs around the company. And after it was that it took me five tries and um, eventually the last VP, he approved it almost immediately. And I tend to believe that's because he was the only VP who was not from the United States. He was actually from South Africa. Mm. So he yeah. fully understood what was at stake.
0: Wow. So, yeah. I mean, once you kind of had that job gone, I mean, did that take you uh, abroad a lot or was most of it still just done from here in Seattle?
2: No, it was. Yeah, I did travel a lot. I mean, I, I once I created the geopolitical strategy team, I did start traveling quite a bit because one of the things I realized very early on, um, in order for my job to be successful, I had to have the ear of all the general managers of the subsidiaries of the Microsoft Um, in you know of microsoft in the different countries and so i spent a lot of time traveling and building up these relationships with the subsidiary managers because they're on the front line i mean they're the ones hearing directly from the government or from the public about these Mm -hmm. kinds of issues and so they would be they would escalate to me and since i'm there in headquarters i could act much more quickly and basically help them out and and make sure action is taken on the on the headquarters side and um and yeah so that and of course there was there was speaking at different conferences and and just uh you know traveling to different subsidiaries for the sake of not only strengthening that bond but sometimes we had to diffuse a lot of issues
1: do you have like an example of a like a really great story of an issue you diffused that if you like to tell I'd be curious
2: Yeah oh yeah I do there's uh, so one probably the most infamous one involved a game called Kakuru Chojin. and that was a game mm. on the on the original Xbox and usually when mm. I say that name very few people if any you know, say, oh yeah, I remember that game.
0: Yeah, I've the, never heard of it.
2: <laughs> and there's a reason people don't remember it because it only existed on the shelf for about three or four months. Ah. Um, and the reason is because in the late, in the late stage of production, they found an, an audio file that had chanting from the Quran for the Islamic Quran in, in the game. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we very quickly determined this cannot be shipped this way. This is inappropriate. And so... Um, what we we had a discussion, you know, so we, we they agreed, the product team agreed, we're going to fix it right away. So they swapped out that audio file and put in something else. But the issue was, we already had a bunch of package units with that were literally at that moment on their way to stores, they were on trucks moving to different
1: retailers. Can, can I ask what I'm just curious, like, why mm-hmm. was that not okay? Like, as well, be, just from well, a layman perspective.
2: No, absolutely. I'm glad you asked because there's more context. So the game is an M-rated game, so it's violent. It's mm, um, okay. the, because the the game, the kind of the hallmark of Kakuto Chojin, the the subtitle of it was back alley brutal. And it was a hand-in-hand fighting game. So sort of, you know, Mortal Kombat-ish kind of thing. Mm, but mm-hmm, it yeah. was taking advantage of the latest coding, you know, revelations about how you could have the characters beat each other up. And you could actually see a progression of damage on the characters as they fight. Mm-hmm. So they start to bruise and bleed and, you know, arms broken and dangling and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I remember um, when
1: that was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it was. it was a big deal. It feels like just it feels just like status quo now but there was a time when that was Mm -hmm. like a really big deal yeah
2: Yeah, exactly so it was basically when it was a way to of course show off the technology of the original xbox say look what we can do um and so having it the this this audio file which was from the quran having that in the context of this this bloody violent game was just inappropriate um, gotcha. you know, it's that just not, it's not yeah. the, it's not the context in which you would normally find that particular passage of, of the, uh, of the Quran or in any context like that. So we basically said, we can't, you know, this can't stand, we can't leave it like this. Um, so we have these, you know, package units and, you know, the, this the decision was to basically release them in the U S and I fought against it. Cause I'm like, you know, the U S is not a homogeneous society, There are, Mm -hmm. you know, there are millions of Muslims in the US and Detroit's like Mm -hmm. 50% Muslim. And um, basically they just kind of, they just said, yeah, okay, whatever. Don't worry about it. Um, (laughs) It's not like
0: that's your job or anything. What do you think? Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, well, the frustrating part for me is that the amount of money that was at stake with destroying those packaged units is less than I knew that, that was the cost of some internal parties sometime at Microsoft. Right, so yeah. it's like it really wasn't that much money. It was, you know, A company that size, they could have easily eaten that amount of money and it wouldn't have much effect. Um, mm-hmm. But they decided that they needed to get these released. And so sure enough, after a few months, um, we, the company receives a letter from the government of Saudi Arabia that basically was a form of cease and desist letter that was um, basically instructing the company that they had offended the Muslim faith, and that you know this was a very serious issue. And um, this got picked up in the newspapers um, in the Middle East, starting in Dubai and Riyadh, and it really started catching fire. I mean, it was it was a caustic issue, and um, it really started getting out of hand from a PR perspective. And there was a lot of mm-hmm. negative commentary and pushback on Microsoft in the region. And so eventually the decision was made is that I got a call from the head of the Microsoft Middle East region. And he said, is there any way that you can come here and help defuse this situation? Because we need somebody from headquarters to come and represent, you know, basically represent headquarters Mm -hmm. and explain what's going on. Because we don't know. I mean, it's, you know, they're the subsidiaries. They're just, you know, basically representing the company. Um, They don't know the, the the nitty gritty details of what happened. And so I decided, you know, I, I decided with my manager's blessing to go ahead and go on this trip. And um, this was actually the thing that made this more intriguing. And this was like five days before the second Gulf War was starting. Oh, so um, so <laughs> that time. added just some, some little extra pressure. Yeah. But um, no. I so i ended up going to riyadh and um i had to sit in front in in a room no windows big round table big meeting room and across from me was um representatives of the the saudi arabian religious council of the government um along with a couple of reporters and um i had two people from microsoft on each side of me and um basically helping to you know helping me out and essentially what happened is that they asked me a bunch of questions about, you know, Microsoft's role in the Middle East. So while I was there just to talk about the game, they were asking really substantial fundamental oh, wow. questions. Like the first question yeah. I was asked is, why did Microsoft open its first office in the Middle East in Israel and not an Arab country? Oh, and, geez. you know, then it, like another question, why did Microsoft just softball, release?
0: softball, softball questions, yeah.
2: Yeah, you know, why did Microsoft release Office 97 in Hebrew before Arabic? You know, and on and on down the list went. Oh, man. And um, eventually we did talk about the game and I did apologize. And um, there was kind of this furious discussion across the table from me once I gave my official apology. And um, it was in Arabic, so I didn't understand it. And of course, they turned back to me and just very quickly said, Thank you for your time. They got up, left the room. Oof. I had to ask the Microsoft guys, so what just happened here? And they said, well, they were discussing whether or not your answer was sufficient. And, of course, my response was, well, what would have happened if it wasn't? And they both kind of shrugged, like, I don't know. (laughs) So, um, fortunately, it was sufficient. So, I went on to have to go to Dubai and and elsewhere to help do damage control on this issue. Mm. And um,
1: That's amazing.
2: You know, so I I get back to Microsoft, and a couple weeks later, the VP of the games division, uh, Robbie Bach, contacted me, and basically, I you know I had been lobbying for like about two and a half to three years for them to formalize this process, and there was some level of resistance because you know games are edgy, games are different, games don't have to do yeah. this kind of stuff, and yet the risk is just as real, and it's just as viable yeah. to the business as well as it is to the customer, and so. Basically, you know, he got he reached out to me after I got back from this trip and said, "Hey, you know that stuff you've been telling us to do? I think that's I think we should do that now. I think that would be a really good idea." (laughs) So, and it's true. And also, and also,
1: we should have listened to you. What you said about that game.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't want to say I told you so, and I actually never did, but. I did yeah, tell yeah. them. I, I warned them. So, but it's yeah. it, this is true of many companies that I've worked with. It, a lot of them have to go through that crucible on their own. Right. They yeah. they mm-hmm. they don't fully wrap their head around exactly what the issue is and the level of risk until they've gotten burned by it, and then they like, oh yeah, okay, now we get it. And that's pretty common. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. You described yourself also as an advocate in mm-hmm. the games industry. What 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 work do you do in that effect?
2: Yeah, so I um, basically in my later years in the game industry, because this is as of this month, this is April 2019. This is my 26th year in the game wow. industry. True. And um, so in all that time... Um, you know, I've worked alongside some really, really remarkable people. I mean, I love these people. I love their skill, um, the creativity. I mean, everything they do, you know, all these different projects I've been able to work on, I I feel so lucky and privileged to have been able to do it, um, you know, from Halo to all the Bioware games of the last 18 years and and so on. Um, And so I, I really admire these people. And so as I was... As After I left Microsoft, I joined the International Game Developers Association just as a member because I, I knew that that would have been a way to connect better with the game industry. Mm-hmm. And um, after a couple of years, I created the Localization Special Interest Group in the IGDA because there wasn't one. And I felt there needed to be a community for those people. And then I got involved in running the IG- you,
1: Um. By the way, sorry, mm-hmm. I just want to no. like help our listeners too because like, yeah. I think a lot of people don't know what the IGDA does. So can right. you, like okay give a quick like a quick pitch about what 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 you do there or what they yeah. what the IGDA does. Yeah.
2: yeah, so the International Game Developers Association is, association has been around for 25 years and basically it was created in 1994 as a way for developers to advocate for their craft in much mm. the same way that Hollywood has different vocal groups of course most all of them are unionized. The game industry currently is is working on that issue. The IGDA is not Mm -hmm. a union. It was just basically a professional association that, that was formed to give developers a voice and to give them a focal point where they can come together and talk about their craft as well as advocate for their craft. Now Mm -hmm. in the game industry, you've got trade associations that advocate on behalf of companies. So like the, the entertainment software association, the ESA that runs E3, that's like their main event they run every year. Mm -hmm. Um, the ESA, they represent companies, not developers. So all the big companies, you know, electronic arts and Microsoft and Nintendo, Sony, on and on and on. Most of these companies are members of the ESA and the ESA's function is primarily to act as a lobbying organization. And, and that's what they do. That's why they're based in Washington, DC. So they're there to run interference for the game industry when the government gets upset at us for, you know, assuming right. that we, we cause violence and all that kind of stuff. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yep. Um, you know, and so that, that's basically the function of a trade association and many, many countries have, some form of trade association representing their game industry. Um, the IGDA was formed to represent the, basically the rank and file workers, the people who are in the trench actually doing the work
1: and mm-hmm. making
2: the games. Um, and there's a lot of conversation that we can get into if you want about the viability of, the, of that organization, <laughs> whether or not it's been effective. However... Yeah. On my personal level, I got involved because I wanted to connect better with the industry. Because when I did leave Microsoft in 2005, I consciously decided that I want to—I really want to focus on games more than anything, because that's where my heart is, mm-hmm. and I really want to do that work. Even though I do a lot of non-game stuff too, um, and so after I created the Localization SIG, special interest group, as a community for people who you know translate and adapt games for. The international market. I also mm-hmm. got involved in running the Seattle chapter of the IGDA, and then eventually, in late 2012, I was approached um, about being the executive director of, of the entire global organization, which I did. Um, and so, the reason I did it is because, in my later years, as I think is true of a lot of people who are in an industry long enough, you start, you know, you start seeing things that really bug you that you want to Mm -hmm. see changed. Like, I think a lot of people know about the crunch issue in the game industry
1: Mm -hmm. um,
2: about working. We do now,
1: you know, (laughs) I think that hasn't been the case for, you know, even in the last couple of years, I think it's just become a big deal. But even before that we knew about it, but people didn't talk very openly about it. I think. Yeah, I think you're
2: right. I mean, I think a lot of the public wasn't really fully aware of the conditions under which a lot of the games they love are made And those conditions actually often suck. Um, Basically, (laughs) you know, you...
0: That's a great way to put it. It's very articulate.
2: (laughs) There's, um, you know, management. When we talk about crunch, what we're talking about is when management mandates to the workers that you will work a 16-hour day or you will work 18 hours or you'll do whatever you have to do to get this game out the door. Um, And, of course, if you complain about it, a lot of times... Management has sometimes used the argument saying, "Well, hey, yeah, that's fine. You can go home. Go ahead and go because I've got twenty people ready to take your place. You know, I've got twenty eager students or younger people who are, you know, blinded by the joy of wanting to work in the game industry, and yet they'll Mm -hmm. find out very quickly that it's it's not such a joy when you're working in those kind of conditions." Right. Um, Yeah so that kind of thing is something that really pissed me off and i wanted to see it change and also the lack of diversity in our industry i mean we're only 20 Mm percent women on average throughout this industry and people of
1: color even in terms of in terms of developers
2: yeah well developers meaning when i use the term developers that basically means anybody who has anything to do with the creation of the game Um, right Mm -hmm you know that not just the programmers i mean that's like the artists the yeah. writers everything and so on average on a global scale it's about 20 percent um of the industry is women um yeah. that varies of course from locale to locale um the representation of of people of color especially in like north america is even worse it's a much lower mm-hmm. percentage and so this this is something where we have to make a we have to make a change i mean i'm a firm believer that you know the more diverse that your staff the the better kinds of games you can make and it's not just about the numbers it's not about just making sure you have x many women or whoever what it is it's about the concept of inclusion that you're you're trying to cast a wide net of inclusivity around creative thought because not everyone thinks the same not everyone approaches things the same you know men and women approach things differently People from different backgrounds, underrepresented groups, different cultures, different geographies, they all bring Mm -hmm. something else to the table. And so the more diverse and inclusive you can make your team, ultimately, the more potential success your game can be because you're actually making a game that's going to to appeal to a much, much broader audience. Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah.
2: So, yeah.
1: I think there's a lot of people, like, I'm totally with you, but I think there's a lot of people that hear that and, like, there's this... I think there's this fear amongst, for lack of a better word, like the the hardcore gamer or something like. Right. I know that's a that's a term that a lot of people would dispute, and I get that. But um, there's like this fear amongst some of those types of people that what you're saying is going to like keep their games from appealing to them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Like, I know. Like... Oh,
2: I know. Trust me. I mean, I when I was running <laughs> the IGDA, I was running the IGDA when Gamergate was a big deal. And yeah, so man. for two years, I was harassed, had death threats from them, and was just constantly dogged by these people who felt that my presence as a, as a woman leader in the game industry was a threat to everything they know and love. And so I'm extremely familiar with this train of thought. And even yeah. people who don't identify with that particular movement, um, I get that people have a fear that you know changing those who make games is somehow going to change the games. And that is just a complete and utter fallacy. I mean, you know when they think about the there are there are a lot of people who have made a tremendous amount of influence over certain game types that they love. Um, you know, I know, for example, one of the core AI programmers who worked on Assassin's Creed, and she's amazing. She's moved on to other stuff now. She's not at Ubisoft anymore, but she was responsible for some of the the core AI that made Assassin's Creed what it is today. I mean, you know, the head of the the head of 343 Industries that makes the Halo games is a woman, Bonnie Ross. She's amazing. Um, You know, it's like there's women in key roles across the board who have had a lot of experience and they've had a role to play that hasn't diminished the quality of the games. It hasn't diminished the the nature of the games. So I tend to think it's an irrational fear that when you see more diversity, they think, oh, now it's all going to be dumbed down or it's going to be all pink characters or some kind of ridiculous, (laughs) ridiculous stereotype about what these underrepresented people are going to bring to the table. Um, but the reality is they are, all you're doing is taking a game that's known and loved or a type of game that's known and loved, like a first person shooter, which happens to be my favorite kind of game and just making sure that, you know, it's, it's accessible for everybody to play, you know, it, it's not yeah. changing the game itself.
0: It's funny. Right. Cause like you, you kind of alluded to this a minute ago, but like, even if we take out all of the the moral and ethical reasons to include more diversity and stuff, like mm-hmm. just as a business decision, like you alluded to this, that you're, you're increasing the amount of people that will potentially pay money for your game. Exactly. Like even if we take out all that other, I mean, what I say, more meaningful stuff, but even if we took all that out and just say, hey, as a business decision, like you can potentially make more money. By doing Uh, this.
2: Absolutely. And that that's the thing. I mean, a lot of people see it as some kind of creative threat, which is again, I think that's complete fallacy. But from a business perspective, you know, basically, you know, people who play games are already multifaceted, multicultural, multigender, multiracial. I mean, it's like those who play games are already you know, represent the broad spectrum of humanity yeah. because gaming has now become yet another form of entertainment, as common as listening to the radio or reading a book or watching a movie or playing mm-hmm. sports or whatever. So, we're gaming is here to stay. Um, and it's not to stay either. I mean, gaming is something we've been doing since the begin, beginning of human civilization, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's nothing new, but the fact that video gaming and electronic gaming and interactive entertainment you know this this is something that humans do now and we we all do it to some degree and and we know that the demographics of those who play games is completely varied and so basically the goal has been at this point to make sure that those who who make games better represent those who are already playing mm. them and and that's yeah. really all all it's about
1: i'd be curious to hear if you would have any advice for like the average listener of this podcast about how they can I don't know like be of help with this regard because I think like I know a lot of people personal friends of mine who have bowed out of participating in the games industry because of a lot of the things you're talking about. They just got they just got burnt out. It's just they f- they felt on un- you know people of color and 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 a lot of a lot of women just bow out eventually I think because it's just it's just as disheart- It can be disheartening after a while, and like, and I to- like I totally respect them for doing that. I, I totally respect the people who who buckle down and, and stick with it as well. But I can totally understand. I mean, and it's not just those people. Like, it's not just people of color. It's the industry chews up and spits out a lot of people in general. I yes,
2: think. it does. Um,
1: so I'd be curious to hear, like, what can the average layman gamer person person who's into games, um do to, you know, be, be an advocate, be of help, be, you know, make mm-hmm. this industry a, a more welcome and inclusive place?
2: Well, in my view, it's, it's it's really, really simple. It's like, just, you know, be kind to one another, to one another, you know, it, it, it's kind mm-hmm. of the golden rule thing, treat others as you would have them treat you. And, and honestly, I think it, it can be that simple. It's like, we don't have to be a-holes online. We don't have to you know express our frustrations and our shortcomings and all these other things that we might be dealing with or struggling with we don't have to express them and vent them at other people in the form of a gaming environment Um, you know, sure. Some people go online to play games and they do vent frustrations of the day. I mean, I do it. I mean, I, I, I will, you can find me in a halo multiplayer (laughs) game still to this day when I feel particularly frustrated because I feel like I just need to kind of get out that energy. Um, I'm not going to shout at someone on online. I'm not going to yell at them. I'm not going to do anything that makes them feel not included. And so it's basically if every single person who went into an online environment was just nice to one another and not make assumptions or, or be dicks about things, um, I think it would make the big difference. But human mm. nature is what it is. I mean, we, we can't rely on people to, quote, do the right thing. And that's why we have to put all these restrictions in place and verifications and all these other problems yeah. that we keep persisting <laughs> because yeah. some people just, you know, they just feel that, to, you know, it's kind of to quote the dark night. They just some, you know, some people just want to cause chaos. They just want to yeah. disrupt things. And that's how they get there. There's their always
0: ch- that, girls. you know, there's always the one person. I had this thought the other day. I was there was a car commercial that came on between whatever Hulu show I was watching. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they always have the fine print at the bottom, professional driver, closed course, <laughs> do not attempt. Like anytime I see those kinds of things, it's because of that one person that did it, you know, yes. that one person that just, <laughs> okay. that was yeah. the dick. It was the one person that was the dick it's true. that caused uh-huh. us to have to put those safeguards in place or whatever, you know, it just yeah. made me think of that when you were saying that.
2: Well, it's, it's true. And it's, it's just, you know, and it's unfortunate because it's like you have a, you know, mostly small group of people who are responsible for the bulk of the harassment and bulk of the, that behavior online. And it's just the problem yeah. is that there's not safeguards in, in place. Um, to stop this kind of thing from happening on a regular basis. And I know there's all kinds of, you know, ideas that been put out there from, you know, making sure that nobody can be anonymous to, you know, there's, there's companies now that specialize in, in using AI. To help find the mm-hmm. harassers and the trolls and kind of put them in a holding cell, so to speak, yeah. online, so that they can't affect anybody if the behavior is discovered, because it is—it is sort of a you know it, it's a, a, a non—it's um, an asymmetrical situation where you've got you know any given company that has an online community, even if it's Microsoft or Sony, you've got tens or even a few hundred of people, maybe, but usually not, against yeah. millions. And millions of people. And it's just so mm. unbalanced. You have to have some mm-hmm. other kind of tool set to rely upon to, to deal with all this stuff. And ultimately, in my view, the way you really deal with it is just if you can get people to just treat each other with a, some act of kindness and just be welcoming to others. I mean, you want people to play with. You want to, you know, to invite people into the environment. And, yeah. um And it's really hard when you've got a few people who just insist on being dicks
0: about it. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, It's a caught, I think it's a caught behavior too, you know, like either in either direction. Cause like, it Mm. it makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of riot games and league of legends and like they've done, I mean, (laughs) those guys have been, uh, working so hard to figure, cause you know, that's a game that people often reference as just a toxic cesspool of negativity. Um, But, uh, you know, I I can think back to when I was playing League um, or even just other online games and like in either direction, the behavior is caught. You know, if it's one person that's being super negative and raging or whatever, then you notice the other people will start to kind of pick up on that behavior. But then in the other Mm -hmm. direction, if somebody's being overly complimentary or kind or gracious or, or whatever, then that gets caught as well. You know, so I think what you're saying, you know, what what can people do like be kind and watch how that can be caught by other people? Yes, you know, I
2: I agree. And and basically just be be committed to watching each other's back. It's just like because any any person in this environment can be a target. And so no and nobody Mm -hmm. wants to be a target for any reason, because a lot of times the targeting is just random and stupid. And so, you know, if we just yep. band together, it's and especially, especially, and I hear it happens sometimes, but it's not happening enough, is where if you hear, like, it happens a lot when a woman gets on her mic, and everyone knows oh, yeah. it's a woman on, on, in the group, and they're about to go into a fight mm-hmm. or something, and inevitably she starts getting a pile on of harassment, and other yep. people, other guys, even if they feel that this is wrong, they don't say anything you know right, yeah. and it's just yeah. like and of course and then they say something and they're called all kinds of names too but honestly right. i'd much rather see someone stand up and, and make a defense and at least show that it's not going to go unchecked by the community right. yeah definitely
1: definitely yeah yeah communities can rally around that kind of thing too if for just with a little bit of effort you know with a little bit of yeah um so we do want to get into like who you are and mm-hmm. your background and stuff. And so um, you, you talked about this a little before we were on the air, but where'd you grow up?
2: So I was born in Los Angeles and um, yay. So I was, I lived <laughs> I live there. In,
0: uh, I live in Ventura, so I'm not far from LA.
2: Oh, cool. So I, I, I was born in, in, in LA and grew up in Sun Valley, which is right next to Burbank airport. And then yeah. when I was about, I think four years old, we moved south to Orange County to San Juan Capistrano for about a year. Um, cause my dad got a teaching job at Viejo high school and he mm-hmm. was, he was a geology and earth science teacher as well as a football and wrestling coach. And so we all moved down to South Orange County and then eventually moved into Viejo, where my parents are still living in that same house after all these years. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so I grew up there and uh, basically was there and, um, uh, did my first year I went to Viejo High School where my dad taught and um, then I did my first year of undergraduate work um, in aerospace engineering at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo and wow. then I went to, then I went back home and did the rest of my schooling in industrial design and geography at Cal State long Beach so yeah i worked right. I worked there Well, I worked there then I worked for a year at Thomas Brothers Maps in Irvine. Um, as a cartographer, and then that's when I decided I really wanted to go to grad school and kind of keep pursuing my, my intellectual ideas, so to speak, and that's what took me to Seattle yeah. uh, in 1989.
1: Wow. Cool. What were some of those intellectual ideas you were interested in? Well, one,
2: of the, the one of the things I was really interested in, and I, I didn't know it at the time, but once I got on the campus at the University of Washington in Seattle, um, I was really interested, and I always have been interested in the in the difference between what you know what is real the quote real world what is how is the real world represented and then how is that interpreted or perceived and it's kind of those different layers of the interaction between what we what is reality how do we view reality and then you know or how do we represent it and then how do we actually view it or perceive it and that's why when i did my master's degree in geography and finished it in 1991 i it was called virtual worlds um technology as an interface to um as a human interface to geographic information so basically i did my master's thesis on vr in 1991 oh wow um
1: that's
0: cool back
2: when the technology really was not that back, great
0: <laughs> back before the matrix <laughs> came out
2: yeah exactly that was that was eight years before the matrix came out so they
0: stole your idea you should get some rights to that or yeah something.
2: i agree i should talk to keanu about that but yeah <laughs> um but yeah I mean so I was really interested in this idea of using um VR um and most mostly uh, to be honest most of the dissertation was about augmented reality and about how we could oh, have yeah. augmented reality interfaces um in fact I actually drew a picture pixel by pixel on my Mac paint program because I wrote it all on my old Macintosh oh. um and it was showed somebody wearing something that looks very similar to a HoloLens so, oh. so when, I, when the HoloLens came out, I kind of said, huh, I don't know. Somebody
0: may have looked are, up my thesis. <laughs> you are the OG, Kate. Like, OG. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: cool. So, that was... Well, that, would you like to... Like, yeah, anyway. Those are good. No, I was just going to say that was my intellectual pursuit. I was basically kind of seeing how can yeah, yeah. we how can we push cartography into the 20th, 21st century.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. It's amazing that that intersected you with the different things that you've done, like... That's really cool. We do like to ask people like, did you, do you, were you religious growing up? Was your fam- family involved in any kind of yeah. church or anything?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, my parents, when I was super young, they went to a Baptist church, and I barely remember that. It was somewhere in LA. Um, but my parents became Christians, I think, shortly before I was born. Mm -hmm. And, um, so yeah, I was born into a Christian family and, um, you know, went to Sunday school and everything. Um, we moved, when we moved down to Mishviejo, we attended a Presbyterian church for, for several years. And, um. And then that church had some kind of schism occur because I think the Presbyterian Church of America, whatever the council is, issued some decree and our pastor just didn't agree with that interpretation. He's like, Mm. I mean, he felt it was a deviation from the Bible.
1: So – or You don't remember what it was. I
2: don't because I was young. I mean, I was in elementary school still. Um, I mean, the most I remember about that particular church is getting one of my two front teeth knocked out in the playground. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Not over a religious debate. It was just goofing around. (laughs) Um, So, um, but then, so when the church split, about a third of the people stayed and the rest left. And so they went and formed and they basically followed this pastor and he formed a new church called Grace Community Church which was formed in El Toro. And so that church really thrived, and my mom created their their preschool program there because that was her background. Mm-hmm. And um, the church really took off. It became one of the fastest-growing mm. churches in, in Southern California at the time. And um, so, yeah, we went there for quite a few years And then eventually, when I was around the time I was um, in high school, or I think I just left high school, I forget exactly, but that church then had this schism because the pastor, the same one who left the Presbyterian church, um, he started becoming like super dogmatic. Um, you know, so, so for example, when some, during the offering, they would have somebody sing, you know, just sing a song or a hymn or something. And when the offering was done, people would clap. They'd clap for the person because they're showing their appreciation. Well, he didn't like that. Mm -hmm. He didn't like people clapping Mm -hmm. in church. So he would like get up there and like –
1: Like it was bringing glory to that person or something. Yeah, exactly. God, was that his thing? Okay.
2: I think so. I think think that was kind of the crux of it. But then, you know, and then we had this remarkable high school pastor who was very formative with my – Thinking, I just think he was amazing. His name was Dave Matson, and mm. um, he was just a great guy. And so sometimes when he was asked to give like the 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 service in the main church, he you know he was a young guy. He had um I wouldn't call him necessarily like liberal thinking, but I mean he was just very energetic. He was such a great contrast to the pastor who was there, and I think the main pastor did not like it because mm. a lot of
1: people liked Dave. Yeah, He's, that's. <laughs> that's often a problem
2: yeah and so (laughs) and so sadly because of this the elder pastor because of his basically his dogmatic approach as he got older the, the church had another schism and so so then that church body was fractured and my parents left and which was painful for them. My dad was an elder of the church at one point. My mom created mm. their pre- preschool program. Right. I, had, I had had great times in high school, you know, uh, learning from Dave Matson and his, his leadership of the entire high school group I thought was great. Um, and then my parents actually ended up at a brand new church that had just started up that was called Saddleback Church run by Rick Warren. <laughs>
0: Never heard of it. Yeah,
2: yeah. so, um, so my parents ended up being part of Saddleback Church, where they still are. I mean, my mom served in the missions group there for many years. Uh, my dad, mm. he, you know, they both volunteer still at the church. My my sister in law is one of the junior high pastors at Saddleback Church. Um, I know Rick well. I know Rick uh, Munchow, who used to do the music there. Um,
1: you know Rick Warren well. So yes, you're
2: yeah, I know Rick. Oh wow. I know him. I mean, when my parents, when they had their 50th wedding anniversary, um, which was, gosh, that was, wow, that was 10 years ago. This is their 60th. Okay. So 10 years ago, when they basically did like a renewal of their vows, um, Rick was the one presiding over that. They asked him if he would, and and he did. And, And when my grandmother passed away, she had been quite a fixture. She was living with us. Um, she was, um, she helped out with like meals on wheels and all that kind of service kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. and so Rick, he also was there to speak at her funeral, which was real, very nice of him. Um, so yeah, and cool. so that was kind of the church journey, the faith journey for myself. I mean, I, I've always identified as a Christian, but going through all those different schisms of the church body kind of really underscored for me just how, how problematic it is when human beings get involved (laughs) (laughs) you
1: know because it's interesting to hear you talk about this because we've had a lot of people on this may and it's like a tough question but yeah uh, we've had a lot of people on the podcast who talk about how the work they do in the games industry in part is motivated by this like internal belief that human beings are um are basically good like yeah. Like you boil it down, they're basically good. And then a lot of what you've shared with us is talking about how you have to <laughs> prepare for how human beings mess everything up. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well and, and, and a lot of the work that you do is has been uh tied to that, you know.
2: Yeah. And I and honestly, I mean it's it's like my you know, as you would probably expect of most um most people with I think a Christian uh point of view is that, you know, they wouldn't say good or evil. They said most, you know, the fundamental thing is that humans are sinful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's sure. not, it's not yeah. that they're good or evil. It's just that they're sinful, which basically means they do things, which is counter to what God um, has basically intended for us to do. And, right. um, and that, I would say that's more along my line as well. I mean, I, I've been around long enough. I turned 54 this year and um, you know, I, I see a tremendous amount of goodness in people. All around the world, Mm -hmm. I I still travel an extensive amount all over the place. Um, I I really believe in the Mark Twain quote that travel is fatal to prejudice, bigotry, and Um, narrow-mindedness. It's one of the reasons I went into geography because I love people. I love culture. I love difference. I really do. I mean, some of my very best friends are of all kinds of different faiths. Um, Mm -hmm. We get along really well. We don't debate each other. Yeah, we'll discuss politics. We'll discuss faith. We'll discuss issues like that. But it's always with kind of a heart of fondness for one another um, because we don't... It's amazing what
1: you can talk about if you start with that heart of fondness. I I think think there's all these topics these days that... Yeah, we think there's all these topics these days that are off, off limits. Yeah. But... I think a lot of times we think they're off limits because we don't love and trust each other yet. You know, I, I
2: totally agree. and so It really disturbed me, for example, during the 2016 election. You know, I'm, I'm not a Democrat or Republican. I'm, I'm just basically a cynic because I do geopolitics for a living. <laughs> <Damn>. <laughs> and, and yes,
1: I. That'll do that to you.
2: And, you know, and I vote because I do my civic duty, but it's just like I yeah i mean of course and i'm i've been much more vocal post-election i'm like i can't even believe we're living in the bad version of 1985 from back to the future (laughs) too it just it's such a weird world we live in you know it's like i don't even know who that person is in the white house but
0: what a time to be alive
2: yeah that's one way of putting it (laughs) so um (laughs) gosh but
1: mm-hmm.
2: it's, it's, I saw friends and I still see it today to some degree when they say, I'm going to unfriend this person because they're a Trump supporter or because they support Hillary or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, why? You can't have a difference of opinion and still be friends. It's like, yeah. it's you know, we we already know that, you yeah. know, the technology we have today and the and the social media technology in particular is designed to maximize social bubbles. You know, and a lot of that right. maximization is happening for the, because they can commoditize people and, and make them good consumers in different groups. Totally. Um, but it really disturbs me because I mean, I remember I, some people got a little pissed off because I called some people out and said, where do you draw the line after politics? If, if you're going to unfriend somebody because they have a whole, a different political view, what about their religious views? You know, what about their views on other social issues? Um, are you really going to unfriend them just because of that? You're not willing to reach out to them and just under- try and understand why they have this different point of view. And that's been a driving force for me. I mean, I, yeah, I hold a Christian world. You can
1: get unfriended for saying that.
2: Well, exactly. <laughs> you can.
1: <laughs> you know? You know, and
2: at this point in my life, I don't care what people do. They can unfriend me. They can friend me, whatever. I really, I don't need to yeah, apologize yeah. for what I believe. And, um, yeah. I don't need to justify it. I believe it because I believe it. Um, you know, I kind of like that line from, you know, if there's one good thing that came from Prometheus, the alien prequel. Mm-hmm. Um, I like when when uh, Elizabeth Shaw, when she says, you know, it's what I choose to believe. I don't need to justify it. I don't need to explain it. It's what I choose to believe. Mm-hmm. And I, I think we, are, we all are that way. You know, we we base what we believe on evidence that we see and on our life experience and my life experience we basically reinforced my Christian belief. I know other people where it didn't, and they don't believe that anymore. They believe other things or nothing at all. Right. Um, in my case, that wasn't the case, And you know, with, with all the traveling I've done and with all the interaction I've seen with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically just made things clear to me. Um, and yet... I still love I love that difference. I love interacting with people from all over the world. I mean, last year when I had the chance to go to Iran um, for a game conference and you hear all the, the nasty stuff in the media about Iran and how evil they are and all that kind of stuff. Right. And I'm like, these are amazing people. They're, these people who are having the stra- yeah. s- same struggles we are the same concerns we are about their government and all these things. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just like, you know, it's, but yet we paint them as with a broad brush. And it it basically confirmed for me something I've known for a while, which basically for any given place, usually about 80% of the people there are exactly the same as everywhere else, which means they're human beings they love their family. They want the best for their kids or for themselves. They just want to be happy. They want to do something that's meaningful, and that's it. And then it, you've got it ten percent on either end of the spectrum who basically try and screw that up for those eighty <laughs> percent, you know.
1: <laughs> and that's oh,
2: that. I mean, that's a you know a high generalization, but that's kind of how I sure. do things. And yeah, and, yeah. and those that, that 10% could be split because of religion. They could be split because of politics. They could be split for all kinds of reasons.
0: Right. Hmm. So I'm yeah. interested, like, I mean, just in the short time we've gotten to get to know you a little bit. I mean, it's so clear. And as you've said already a couple times of like, you just love difference. You love diversity. You love different perspectives and that kind of stuff. And I'm curious, like. Is Can you pinpoint where that came from? I mean, it, either growing up, was that like a high value for your parents that they instilled in you? Or, I mean, was that something from your faith or like learning about Jesus or know that kind of stuff? Like, is there any kind of things you can point to that you feel like kind of grew that in you?
2: Yes, I think it's a combination. So I, I think it was built on the foundation of the way my parents are. I mean, my parents mm. are very loving people i've seen them take people in they actually had at one point two additional people living in our house because mm-hmm. these people that were under such hardship um you know and and um one of these people was a gay man who was having some struggles and of course at that time when it when it was this is like you know in the 1980s or even like late 70s and right. yeah um yeah. I mean, that was something that was kind of unheard of that. Why would a Christian? Well, that ring? was,
0: was that kind of around like all the AIDS panic stuff too? Yes, kind of exactly. Time? Yes. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yes. And so, you know, at the time it's like, why would you do that? You know, that's right, bad. That's you know, like, that, yeah. you know, how could you possibly do that? But my parents have always had this incredible heart of love and service. And I know, especially, I mean, for both of them. And um, my dad has, I think always been a great example of serve of, of what a servant can be. He is a very much a leader Kind of person, and a lot of people look to him as a leader. But I mean, honestly, Mm -hmm. my management style that I've used ever since then, I really have pointed people to my dad's example, who taught me that that leadership means service. It Mm -hmm. means that if you're a manager, your job is to take care of the people underneath you, not to drive and drive them forward and whip them, and you know, demand of them and take credit for them. You know, basically, you're there to shepherd their needs, and that is a very Christ-like attitude. Um, you know, and even Christ in, in many examples in the Bible showed that, you know, our job and our and our mandate is to care for people who can't, you know, or who are in need. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's just like, I totally understand many of my atheist friends who point to either the incidents in their past or things that they witness on, you know, an ongoing basis, where they say, "Well, that's not a Christian attitude." That pastor did this, or that priest did that, and I'm like, yeah. I absolutely agree with you. <laughs> it's like they um, are not <laughs> exhibiting the kind of behavior they should, and I and you have every right and every every you know reason to feel angry at them and to question some, question the faith, you know, in general. You know, not just question that person's faith, but question why would somebody of that background do this. It's like that's because people, again, are to me they're not they're not inherently. I mean, we're they're inherently broken in some way, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And so I think you know, seeing building that on the foundation of my parents, um, that 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 basically trying to be colorblind, trying to be blind to the whatever circumstances of that person, where they're from, their culture, their religion, and just basically appreciating them as a fellow human being you know, who, who's on this planet together. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. one of the influences too, I think, was the fact that I grew up loving the space program and I wanted to be an astronaut at one point. Mm. And I, I love a lot of the writings and the, the discussions of the astronauts who once they had had that opportunity to go into space and they realize how absolutely precious the world is, that you know, mm-hmm. this is all we've got. <laughs> There's nowhere else to go. Yeah. There is nobody yeah. else. You know, we, here we are. And so, if we can't figure out how to get along together and to to be caretakers of not of one another and of where we are, mm-hmm. then we're doomed.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. We're not doing such a good job of taking care of it lately. It seems like <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, but no, this is this has been great because I think like it just reminds me of. Um, you know, we we've had this talk with with different people on the show before, but I think that a like a Christian view of people is 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 a lot more nuanced than maybe we we sometimes articulate. Like I know some Christians that really hammer down on like you're totally depraved and you're broken and nothing in you is good, and uh, I think that's can be a really like dangerous path to go down as well as. The one that's like, no, people are just great. They're just wonderful. Like but both of those are like a Christian view of people says, no, you know, <laughs> people are broken, but uh, but they're also image bearers, which means well, they have tremendous potential. You know, we all have tremendous potential to bring um, to bring order and beauty and benefit to the world around
2: us. We you do. In, in and I mean, a, you know, Christ himself said it. you know, they'll know we are Christians by our love. And those all yeah. those behaviors that you see a lot of people exhibit who who say that they're Christian that's not love that's that's not showing care that's not showing concern, you know it's like I'm I'm an avid cosplayer I go to San Diego Comic Con and other cons and um, have a ton of fun with it I cosplay as different characters like you know the Jane Foster Thorne, and Wonder Woman and Captain Marvel and all that oh, stuff nice. and a lot of times at nice. these events you'll see. Christian groups who show up with these big signs that say you're all going to hell, yep. you know, and all this other stuff. And, and they're shouting, you know, Bible verses at mm-hmm. people who are cosplaying as they're walking past. And, of course, those people, many of them are mocking them and ridiculing them in return. But I'm just like – how are you possibly thinking that this approach (laughs) is going to win anybody over to your side? Who's going to listen to you where they're in the midst of doing something they love and enjoy and you're sitting there shouting Bible verses at them and telling them that they're going to hell. It's like, yeah, okay, I get why you're doing it, but it's like, do you really think that in today's day and age, that's the approach to take? And especially is, you know, and it really kind of comes down to that issue. Is that showing love? Is that helping this person? you know, how, how is this really making this person's day better? <laughs> and it's just yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know, and I, I think it'd be hard to answer that question for them.
0: Well, that's one of the, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we exist with our, our organization, Love Thy Nerd is because like we're Christians, mm-hmm. you know, we've grown up in this, in this, in both cultures. Like we've grown up in nerd culture and we've seen how that's developed. We've mm-hmm. grown up as Christians, uh, a lot of us. and And we've seen that hurt and yes. continue to see that hurt. And we know that that's like, that's not the Jesus that we know no. <laughs> that we've come to, to love. And so we're trying to go through and say like, Hey, you know, contrary to what you've heard and felt and been screamed at about, uh, Jesus loves you no matter what.
2: Exactly. And yep.
0: even, even if you like Star Trek more than Star Wars, it's okay. <laughs> even if, <laughs> even if you're an Xbox user, it's fine. Yeah.
1: Whether yeah. or not you liked the last Jedi, yeah, uh, totally. yeah there's even for that. There's actually, no, that
0: that's where we draw the line. That's oh. actually the one place.
2: Well, I actually thought it was okay. I, well, I, I had more problems with the space physics in that movie than I did with the story. Oh, the, yeah. space, the space physics yeah. are just atrocious, but yeah. That, uh-huh.
0: that movie took me on a journey of self-discovery because <laughs> I, like The Force Awakens came out and I was all about it. I mean, I was hook, line, and sinker, yep. you know, just for it. And so, you know, the two years leading up to The Last Jedi, I mean, I had a box full of expectations for what that movie needed to do to impress me. And of course, Ryan Johnson threw, yeah, Ryan Johnson (laughs) threw every single one of those expectations out the window just the way that Luke chucked that lightsaber over his shoulder. Yep. And I was pissed after the first time. I mean, like, I was ready to just swear fealty to Star Trek or something. <laughs> and, but I took a breath, you know, I read a I lot of Chris stuff. Watch it again. Drew, you know, it. Drew yeah. talked me off the cliff <laughs> and I went and saw it again. And I loved it. Like yeah. being able to just view it for what it was and what he was trying to do uh, loved it. And of course, now, you know, with episode nine coming and the trailer and Palpatine, all this stuff, I'm pissed yeah. <laughs> again because, like, I just got onto this. I felt like I just got on the train of like, cool, like let's do something new, like let's, you know, let's uh-huh. subvert these expectations. Or right. I'm sorry, we're going on a Star Wars tangent. You started it, Kate. <laughs> this is you. This is on you. Um, I can. And sorry. now, like, they released this trailer, and it just seems like, okay, why is Palpatine back? Like, we're just doing the same tired stuff again I mean I'm still gonna watch it and I'll probably well, like it I don't know
2: I don't know to me just I mean we can stop this thread just tell me <laughs> just <laughs> just like when I, when I heard
1: I pal- do, I'm curious though
2: but when I heard pal yeah, Palpatine's laugh I mean I'm like he was, he's was. he been there since episode one he's been a part of this whole thing the whole arc of, of, of Anakin and Vader and all that has he's been there as part of it and I'm not Troubled by the idea that he would be around um, to end the entire nine movie series, that he would at the very end have some role to play in what happened. But the the thing is, they damn well better explain the whole Snoke silliness and what that and what that was all about. You know, yeah. it's just like I'm like, okay, so if, what? Palpatine was behind that, or you know, was he just like the front man for Palpatine? Or I mean, I, who knows? Yeah. I don't. I mean, it's just. The whole thing, it, I'm a little frustrated. I'm like, okay, let's just see how it ends, you know. I'm, I'm frankly at this point, I, I'm so much more interested in Marvel and in Endgame and everything.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> we've been, uh, my wife and I have been marathoning all the Marvel, all, all the Marvel movies leading up to Endgame. Oh yeah, and it's like I've, I was kind of burned out on superhero movies, to be honest. Like I was just kind of over it. I mean, ten years, you know. Yeah. And they all just yeah. kind of kept seeming to drop into the same formula. But rewatching all of these, like, it has given me such a, like, new appreciation for what they've been able to do. It's pretty amazing. Like, it's, it's
1: wild.
2: Yeah. But, yeah, I have so. to speak it in does. Bratislava next week. And I already have my ticket to see Endgame there. So, oh, Because nice. that's where I'm going to be on the 25th. So, In, in where? In Brat- where Bratislava, in Slovakia. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> Well, I'm glad. I'm glad you get, still get to see Endgame. game. That's exciting. yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> well, I, there's no way I'm not going to see it. I mean, it will be in English yeah. with Slovak subtitles, but that's totally fine.
1: Yeah, hey, yeah, you can handle that. <laughs> cool. Well, this has been great. We really enjoyed having you yeah, on, Kate. For sure. Um, well, thank it's you. Fascinating to hear your story about the games industry, and also to hear about your faith. And um, yeah, it's 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 been really great. So thanks well, for coming on. Well, thank you for inviting um, where- me. What's the best place for people to, like, follow the work that you do?
2: Um, I think the best place would probably be on Twitter. So I'm, my handle is at Geography, which is G-E-O-G-R-I-F-Y.
1: Great. And anywhere else you would – anything else you want to plug?
2: Um, No, I mean, there's just a lot of other stuff I do. I mean, there's, like, a 50 over 50 list that I'm coming out with again. I did one last year, which basically celebrates people who are over 50 in the game industry because we oh, cool. tend to highlight youth and all that I think a little too much. And we forget about the people who are still working and still amazing game creators. So last year, I just on a whim did the 50 over 50 list, which is, which you can find on 50 over 50 um, Mm lists.org. And um, I'm going to be relaunching the 2019 version of that soon. And then also probably in the near future, probably within the next several months, I'm going to be launching the game creator legal defense fund, which is actually going to be something to give game creators some kind of legal leverage so they can you know, push back on their companies if they're making them work too much. Or mm. you know, if, yeah, if they're cool. in, for smaller developers who want to sign a contract with a big publisher, it'll actually give them a legal resource to get help and all that kind of stuff. That's great. Great. Cool. And that's Very it.
1: Cool. And you're also involved in a Take This?
2: Yes, so I'm a board member of TakeThis.org, which I also really encourage people to check out because TakeThis was created um, as a resource for mental health in the game industry, both on the developer side and on the game player side. And -hmm. so there's a lot of great resources there for people who struggle with mental health issues. And that was one of the first things I did after I left the IHDA role was to, I joined the board because I, that's one of the very common things I saw in a lot of people, um, um when i was you know dealing with people uh running the igda was people who had were dealing with chronic mental health problems in the industry some of which may have been caused by the working conditions and whatnot but other people just have you know issues that they're struggling with and there's no resources for them and so that's why this organization was created
1: that's great very cool definitely encourage people to check those out uh for sure, go check those things out, and uh, you can follow us on all the social medias. Basically, just search for at Love Thy Nerd. Uh, when you go to Facebook, you're gonna want to like the Love Thy Nerd, and then you're gonna want to ask to join uh, the Love Thy Nerd community. So if you want to talk about nerdy things with other nerds online on Facebook, uh, yeah, go check that out. It's a great community. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm Druidix eighty two. Uh, Chris is not on Twitter, but you can find him on Facebook. Um, Go check out our articles and podcasts and everything at lovethynerd.com. We have tons of great, just tons of really great content. Um, We recently did a, you were talking about cosplay earlier, Kate, Mm -hmm. and uh, we recently did an article called Why Does Cosplay Matter? So um, if you've ever like had friends that you saw like dressing up in costumes and you thought that was weird... Uh, we wrote an article about why it's not that weird and actually, it's actually really great. So go check that out. Um, and I think that's basically it. Uh, we have a whole podcast network. Go check out Free Play and uh, The Pull List. The Pull List is our relatively new comic book podcast. It's not really new anymore. but it's no, still we can't keep new. saying that. Newer. It's newer than all of our other podcasts. Newish. But, uh, and we have we have some Facebook live shows. So we have Beard Bros, where they review generally review board games once a week on Fridays. And then we also have... Um, co-optional in which Matt Warren Beer uh, and his wife Erin will play one of the games that they showed on Beer Bros and and give away a copy as well. So go check those out. And uh, that's it for us today. Thanks again, Kate. Thank you. Thanks very much.